Hello, I am Yogini Sunita and this is Meditation, Yoga and Stuff podcast. I believe my dharma or my life's purpose is to share my understanding of meditation, yoga and Ayurveda, holistic healing science of India. I make these amazing wisdoms accessible and adaptable for present times. So let's start. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here, Sally. Today's guest is Sally Kempton. And I have so many books of Sally. I've listened to Sally's audio books and things like that. It's amazing. And I'm so grateful that she's here today. Sally, can you please introduce yourself in your own words? Well, my name is Sally Kempton. I'm a, a uh, teacher of spiritual wisdom and an author. I've um, been doing practice for about 50 years, and I'm a former sannyasin Swami. I was a student of Swami Muktananda of Ganeshpuri, and who initiated me into sannyas. And in 2002, I left my robes mainly because I wanted to be able to teach from where people are. It had begun to seem nothing, no critique of swamis who are often very, very great beings. But I wanted to have comparable problems to the problems my students had. And so I, uh, I left the ashram and I left my robes and I began to teach independently. I live in California and I do lots of courses and podcasts and programs online and you know, of course, these days, pretty much everything is online or on Zoom. And yeah, and I teach mainly from the non-dual tantric texts, the the teachings of Kashmir Shaivism, the Trika lineage, and a lot in the last few years about goddess. And I also teach more straightforward texts, as it were, the um, Yoga Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, Yoga Vashista. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I'm teaching yoga, especially yoga philosophy and meditation. Beautiful. And when was the first time you realized that this is your path? Like when you introduced to the wisdom of this ancient wisdom of yoga? Oh, well, in the <laughs> long time ago. So I was on a spiritual path with a Western teacher in a Western tradition. And I experienced a very strong Kundalini awakening through a contact with the Tibetan teacher, which kind of started me on that particular internal path. And shortly after that, I met Swami Muktananda and began to study with him, travel with him, serve him. And basically, I learned everything from him. He used to edit his books and you know, he had us, those of us who were teachers or who had communication skills, he had mm-hmm. us trained in various texts by an, an Indian Swami. So I received a pretty thorough education in the texts, and that was in the 70s and 80s. And the Kashmiri Shaivism, how that introduced into your path? Like, Well, yeah, so my guru... He was a traditional Indian sannyasin, meaning he studied Vedanta, Mm. which is 
which it tends to be the philosophy that's, that sannyasins are drawn to. And in his sadhana, in his practice, he, his MO was to visit different spiritual teachers, different saints and siddhas. And when he met his guru, who was an avadut, a very, very unconventional, very powerful being, who lived in Western India in a town called Ganeshpura near Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And he received Shaktipat initiation, had a very, very strong Kundalini awakening. Mm-hmm. And after nine or 10 years, you know, he became self-realized, enlightened. And it was his experience, his post-enlightenment experience that drew him to Kashmiri Shaivism. Because in Vedanta, there is no talk about Shakti, about guru-disciple relationship, about Shaktipat and Kundalini. Mm-hmm. And his awareness was that his entire path had been fueled by the awakened Kundalini through the grace of the guru. So he began to read Kashmir Shaivism and you know, eventually began to teach it to us. So it was really the first scriptural tradition that I studied. And it was radical to me. It was completely transformative for me, not only because the, the texts themselves are so, so filled with transmission, with, you know, with beauty and wisdom, but also because they had an almost magical effect. And this is, you know, one of the things about the texts, the scriptures of the Indian tradition is that when they're transmitted to you by a realized master, they not only, you know, open you intellectually, mm-hmm. they also work in your body and they affect your relationship to the outer world. So I would have all these petty, these small little miracles going on in my life, you know, as I started studying it. And it, you know, basically became my worldview. And this was in the, this was in the mid to late 70s. So I've been uh, studying the Trika system for many years. I can see that in my, uh, I mean, I was introduced to you by one of my friends. She gave me your books as gifts for my birthday. And I was in love with it because I'll tell you a little bit of my background. So my father's side is the Durga goddess, uh, Saptashrungi Mata, is the, the family goddess. So that's all really strong women in the family. And the goddess image was always there in my life. Like that's our family goddess. So Durga is everywhere in our any ritual. And from my mother's side is the Natha Sampradaya. So uh-huh. Natha's from my mother's side, mother's town is, is situated where the recent awakening of Natha Sampradaya, Sant has happened there in that town. And it's still, you, you sense that in that temple, his presence. And uh, that's where Sant Nyaneshwar Maharaj, you know, Samadhi. Yes. And all my uncle's names is Natha Sampradaya's names, you know, the Nathas. So yes. it's there, like it's constantly there. And on top of that, obviously, Veda's wisdom is always there. And when I was reading to a book, I'm like, oh my God, she knows what she's talking about. You know? <laughs> and yeah. I just fell in love with your, all your work. And so thank you for, you know, thank being you. on the podcast. I really appreciate that. 
And I also like your work because it's approachable, even though it is so deep and so divine, but it still gives you a feeling that I can do this, even in my busy life, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what my friend who started following your work, she said that's what she loved because having two kids, full-time job, you know, running around and still managing meditation. And she said, this really works for her. The concept is that you don't have to go to Himalaya for this experience. You can still get it here in this now. Would you like to talk a little bit about like how you started bringing that into day-to-day life, what people can do to do these practices into their day-to-day life, how long there should be the practice, things like that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's an entire class. Yes. <laughs> so, so I was always fairly full-time mm. in my practice, but most of my practice was seva. So mm. though I was living in an ashram and though I had pretty much dedicated my life to practice, I was still busy the way people are busy when they have jobs. Didn't have kids, which mm. makes a big difference. Um, so what I discovered for myself was that if I meditated for an hour in the morning and then did japa, did mantra japa mm. at, at intervals during the day when I wasn't engaged, when my mind wasn't engaged in anything, first of all, there would be a state of well-being that was always there to return to. Mm. And that the mantra practice would kind of keep me attuned to the heart. So what I always suggest for people who are real householders. And, you know, I do think being a parent is not only challenging, it's really one of the major ways of coming to God mm. if, if you understand it as seva. You know, so, you know, so first of all, I would say that the concept of karma yoga, the concept of seva from which the Bhagavad Gita and the whole Hindu tradition mm. privileges so much is it's incredibly important and it's the way to turn your otherwise frustrating, often frustrating, sometimes beautiful, worldly life into practice is by just remembering to offer everything you do. And whether you offer it to God or you whether you offer it for the benefit of all beings or whether you offer it to the earth, it doesn't really matter. It's that idea of dedicating your life to something greater and higher that kind of rescues our karma from being binding. So that's the kind of overall lifestyle shift that I suggest people make. Of course, most people can't do it all at once, but you know, if you can wake up in the morning and offer your day and go to bed at night and offer your, you know, in retrospect, offer your day, that's often enough. So in terms of practice, what I often suggest to people is that you start with what you can manage, which could be 10 minutes. Hmm. And that 10 minutes will begin to create a samskara, an impression in your subtle body, which, you know, will first of all, keep bringing your mind back to that place. And then you might consider if you have time adding a minute a day till you get up to at least half an hour, which is often as much as, busy people can handle. And then I suggest, I suggest doing mantra practice 
pretty much all day if you can, but the best, you know, the times when it's easiest to do it are when you're washing the dishes, mowing the lawn, you know, taking a walk on the treadmill, you know, at the gym, eating. If you're not talking while, if you're eating alone, doing japa, repeating a mantra while you're eating is really, really good for your health, for your digestion. And now as well as a way of, of really, you know, one of the great Sufi masters, Hazrat Anayat Khan, used to say that the way we make the food we eat, the way we make our our body able to assimilate the food we eat is by doing by doing mantra over the food because that makes a connection between our subtle body and the prana in the food. And as you know, that you know the way you eat is incredibly important for your your life. So I just suggest to recapitulate. Start with 10 minutes, add time to it, find a practice that you like, which can be a simple breath practice. I personally, most people who meditate these days seem to be doing some form of mindfulness practice where you count breaths, you pay attention to the breaths, you count one to 10 and then you start again. I find that practice dry uh, and, but the breath is, of course, the anchor for meditation. And what I would often suggest is that you begin by, by meditating with OM, you know, which is a very simple, easy to remember mantra, and you don't need initiation for it. Yeah. Or imagine light coming in with your breath and then flowing through your body with the exhalation. And you can even combine them. And so this is really... Part of what this practice does, you know, and this is a very tantric idea, is that it helps make your body as well as your mind subtle. You know, that, that the whole, you know, the problem, so to speak, with the human body, especially once we've grown up and, you know, gotten involved in all the stuff we're involved in, is that it becomes quite dense and full of tension. And not to mention all the dis-ease that we accumulate over time. So what meditation can do, especially meditation of light and mantra, which, you know, sacred sound, mm. is it just can begin to break up the tension. And, you know, and what I found over time, and this takes a while, I mean, years, <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight for most people unless you're really spiritually talented, which I was not. You know, I pretty much of a, I was kind of a slow learner. The only thing I had was that I was committed, but I, you know, I, I really had very, I didn't have a whole lot of spiritual experiences in my early years, but what happened was that over time, you know, in over the course of two or three years, the feeling of being in my body became more and more an experience of lightness and eventually of light, you know, and this is, as you know, it's a fundamental tantric idea that that as you inject sacred sound and sacred sacred vision into your body, that it divinizes, it makes your body ultimately into a sacred body, which our bodies are. It's just that we haven't awakened the sacred powers within our body. I'm not only talking about Kundalini, but about you know the the powers that exist really all over the body, in the chakras, 
but in you know parts of the body that aren't officially chakras. So by working with mantra, working with breath, paying attention to tension, you know, feeling into tension, offering a mantra into the tension or making space around the tension, we gradually dissolve the, you know, the tensions that are in the body and release occurs. It's a very subtle process, but it's unfailing. Yeah. 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 Um, My personal experience is similar. I was drawn to this wisdom because of my grandmother. I've seen her always meditating and uh, always saying the goddess's name. She had her guru and I've seen the devotion towards this path of, you know, just constantly chanting mantra. That's what she did. You know, everything she did, there was a joy in that. And uh, she lived with us. My father's mother, she lived with us. A very gentle soul. And I've seen this wisdom, what it can do to the mind, like she was glowing, you know, it just in her presence, we felt safe, we felt nurtured, we felt care. And I feel this similar thing when I met my guru, which was also like just a few years ago, and he hardly speaks. My guru is in Kupurgao, just a half an hour from my hometown, actually. But I had to travel all around the world and then... I met him. When I met him, I was in sea of Indian, hundreds of Indian people, you know, and uh, he looked at me directly and and experienced the Shaktipat just by his look. And then later I was asked to meditate in his presence. And so some of us went and meditated. And that's when I felt like a pain releasing from my body towards him. I felt a pain release there. And I realized that the what my practice was before and what is now is completely different. Yeah. Um, and having that guru's, even though he doesn't speak, he just said one sentence to me. He said, where were you? I have been waiting for you. And then he said, everyone started looking, who is he talking to? You know, is this woman? And he said, you're a bridge between the worlds." And he went How back beautiful. to the meditation. How yeah. beautiful it was wow. quite, quite profound. And I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? The yeah. rational mind wanted to talk and all that. But I also sometimes feel that, you know, in meditation, we get these experiences, deep experiences. And sometimes it feels a need of having a guru or guide. Uh, what are your thoughts about that in this modern world? Say, someone picking up your book and maybe getting these experiences. What is your suggestion to them? Finding a guru in this modern world is really difficult. You know, there are a lot of shady things happening out there. So I understand people's fears. So any suggestions for people getting these maybe beautiful experiences, but there is sometimes I notice in my students, my clients, there is a fear around it because it's unknown, fear of unknown. And so how can people ground those or listeners may not have a guidance. So how can they ground their practices? Can you suggest something? Well, yeah, I mean, that is that is a big issue. You know, one of the things that's happened in the modern world, you know, for many reasons, but because I would say, to some large extent, beginning with the Indian diaspora and the Tibetan diaspora, that these very profound esoteric teachings and teachers have began to, you know, show up all over the world. I mean, not only in 
in America and Europe, also in China, you know, which is a, there's, you know, quite a lot of spiritual activity, oddly enough, in China. And there are not great Siddha masters everywhere you turn. Yes. You know, so, and many of the teachers that, you know, at best, met, you know, the teachers who I find trustworthy have, are usually disciples of a very, very realized guru. And they may not be in the, that guru's state themselves, but they're carrying lineage shakti. And as I know you know, Sunita, that it's actually the shakti of the guru lineage which in, you know, in my tradition, your tradition, yeah. you know, it's said to come directly from Shiva or directly from goddess, depending on the nature of the lineage, comes down through the human sampradaya and, and moves through the, let's call them the faithful disciples mm. the ma- of, the, of the self-realized masters of the siddha, the siddha gurus and the lineage. So I found that you can trust a teacher who may not necessarily be a guru in the traditional sense, but who is a true acharya. You know, I like to make a distinction between a guru who's somebody who is, forgive me for using this word, so pickled in the divine that every word they say can, you know, can call up that state in you. And, you know, a guru is someone who who can, who's qualified to take full responsibility for your spiritual progress, even after you leave your body. So there are very few Hmm. such things around, but such gurus, and there are people who, you know, who haven't been with Siddha gurus who are, fall in this category, who are knowledgeable, they've studied, they know the scriptures, they know the texts, they know the practices, they have integrity, and such people are reliable guides. That, you know, again, as you, as Sunita, as you probably know, what the scriptures of the traditions that I studied with say is that you to be reliable, a teacher has to has to be connected to a lineage master. I don't think that's entirely true. I mean, I have met teachers who did not have a guru, but who are in a who are in a very advanced state and are beings of integrity. So it's not quite that cut and dried. But knowing the lineage is a very good guide to whether a teacher is trustworthy. So that's one piece. Obviously, you know, for many reasons, you know, we have jobs, we have families. We are not going to go traveling all around the world looking for teachers. What we do have is the internet. And with all of its, with all the dangers of the internet, and there's a lot of fake spiritual information on the internet as in every other field. Nonetheless, some of the great teachers of our time are, can be found on the internet. You know, they give talks, they give teachings, they give mantras. Mm. And if there's a teacher whom you have reason to trust or whom you're drawn to, the chances are very good that you can find them on YouTube or go to their website and actually have an experience with them that will give a transmission, you know, that will deepen your practice. So that's a very beautiful thing. And, the, you know, the, you just have to be careful. I mean, even more careful on the internet than you are in person. That's uh, yeah, so, so that's a short answer. I would say 
the stories we read about gurus doing untoward things and betraying their disciples in one way or another are very scary. Mm. So it's good to be discerning. You know, they, they say, test the guru. One of the things my guru used to say is that, that it's all very well for you to test the guru, but you should also realize the guru is also going to be testing you. And the truth is, and this is also something he said that, again, in my experience, I have found to be true. If you're really sincere in your practice, you're going to make progress, even with a teacher who may not be the ultimate, but you can make sufficient progress so that you'll be led to the wisdom that you need, the teachers that you need. And, you know, as long as you're keeping your discernment and being appropriately questioning without engaging in the kind of doubt that makes it impossible to practice, then you'll probably be okay. And I, I just would say one more thing. Mm-hmm. That many people become disillusioned with their teachers at a certain point. It could be for many reasons. I mean, sometimes it can be for a very good reason. Sometimes it could be because they're not able to process the fact that your spiritual teacher is also a human being with mm-hmm. quirks and foibles and you know areas that are not skillful and who even does things that you just can't deal with at all. But one thing that I've discovered and that I feel is very important is to recognize that disillusionment is part of the path. So if you doubt or if you have a question or if you, have, if you feel disillusioned with your guru, just understand that what's happening is you're being turned back onto your own self, you know, towards the, the guru presence that's in all of us. And what, of course, you know, the greatest truth about the guru is that the guru, the human guru, the external guru awakens our relationship with the guru inside. And so that will happen. Very well said. Beautifully said. Ultimately, it's our journey. And a lot of time uh, seen that people want to put this experience on others in a sense, like looking up to the guru, having certain expectations about the guru. And those expectations, when they are not met, they feel shattered. And this is where I think it's, we need to understand that this is all our own journey, our own experiences. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we meant to have maybe this experience, even though if the guru is not what our, like, you know, people think that the guru should be. Again, that's the expectation. We are kind of like creating this illusion of what guru is. When I met my guru, the experience was absolutely, I cannot put it in words. Yeah. Like, and before that, I have met many siddhas, many, you know, teachers, gurus, and I used to have this doubt in back of my mind that, is this my guru? Yeah. But when I met my guru, there was no doubt. There was just total peace. I can't explain it in words. It was a very energetic thing. Energetically, he's very, uh, he's massive, but physically he's a very tiny being, like it's like short, you know, but I felt like I was held in a mother's energy. And these kind of experiences, I must have done something right in past life so that I have this experience, you know, 
I wasn't expecting that to happen because you never know is this going to happen this lifetime or next lifetime you know that's how I look at it you know and fortunately it happened this lifetime but he's a silent guru so I cannot ask anything I can just invoke his energy in my meditation and it guides me so there are no words exchange it's very difficult to explain he's in India I'm in Australia like it's all these things like you know but still his presence gives me that guidance and I think that the grounding practices also help you know just accepting these practices as as experience I think that that's really helpful what are your thoughts like is that how you look at it these experiences sometimes come in meditation oh yeah and a lot of wisdom comes in meditation Mm -hmm. the thing is yeah the relationship that you're talking about is kind of, as you know, it's kind of classic. You know, I mean, there was a time, I guess, when people lived in the same village as their guru and just, you know, saw the guru at the temple or crossing the street or et cetera, in the market. Not true anymore for most people. So generally speaking, that's how our sadhana goes. We're in one place, the guru is somewhere else. Maybe you see them once or twice a year or maybe you don't see them for years. Uh, and, you know, that I've always found it's, it's very useful to have regular contact, even if it's only once a year, because that's what kind of rekindles the flame and the connection. And, but other than that, if your guru is someone who can really guide you energetically, then it can all happen internally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there are all sorts of tricks that we do, like, looking at a picture of the guru and asking a question and seeing what comes up inside. I mean, there's just many ways that you can invoke wisdom and, and we become, you know, I, one of the things I often say is that meditation teaches you how to meditate. Mm -hmm. So if you keep at it, if you keep going inside, if you keep asking, what is this experience? And if you're going to ask, don't ask during meditation, wait until after meditation, you know, but, but every experience you have is going to reveal something about the truth of what you are. You know, whether it's a light that passes through in meditation, whether it's a feeling, which to me, it's the feeling experiences that are the most important. You know, the, the, just the shift in your sense of self, the feeling of love that comes over you, you know, the spaciousness that arises sometimes in meditation. Those experiences, even more than the extraordinary visual gifts that some people have, if they change your bhava, your inner feeling, your sense of yourself, then that's how you know that a particular practice or a particular type of sadhana is really making a difference. It's meant to transform you, often very subtly, you know, in very little ways, but And what it transforms is your feeling, your sense of self, your sense of other people, your ability to be kind and compassionate, as you spoke about your grandmother. Uh, Those are the qualities of someone who does serious spiritual practice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, the pure love in these uh, beings experience is amazing, you know, and uh, that uh, the the word love compassion uh, it just vibrates there um, 
Sally, where can my listeners find you? I will put your all information on your website and your social media contact. But what are the courses you're offering now? What can people, you know, look forward to on your website to do? Uh, would you like to talk about it? Well, I have a, a bunch of short programs that are coming up in the next two or three months. Mm-hmm. Some of them are free. I'm doing a free meditation class every month. The next one is on Shivaratri, which is uh, Monday, the 28th. I don't know if people will be hearing the podcast before that. But I, I generally do one the first weekend of every month, and usually on a Saturday. And in those classes, I'm sort of going through the basics of meditation from a, a Kashmiri Shaiva viewpoint, from a non-dual viewpoint. There are a number of audio courses on my website that you can purchase and download. Mm-hmm. And much of what we've been, you know, the, the classes that we've been talking about, there are actual classes on seven. Most of them are seven part, seven part classes. You know, there's a couple of series on the Bhagavad Gita. There's several series on different Kashmir Shaiva texts. There's a one on the uh, Yoga Sutra. There's a class on love, which a lot of people like a lot. And there's the most recent one was called Cultivating Shakti, which is actually about Goddess Durga. We did it on Navaratri in 2021. So you can do these courses and my programs. My books are for sale on Amazon and as well as some of the audio, audio meditation. So I'm pretty accessible. Yeah. <laughs> I love your books. I highly recommend those who listeners. I love books. I love Sally's uh, <laughs> Google you and uh, listen to you on YouTube a lot with some of your older podcasts as well. And amazing, amazing work you do, you know, so much gratitude towards you for doing this because this wisdom you're sharing, it's again, I would say that it's very accessible. It feels that I can do this, you know, and I like that kind of practices where we bring it in this, these ancient wisdom into our day-to-day life here in this now. And the practices and your understanding of the goddesses is that's how I've seen them in my meditation. Oh, that's so beautiful. And so it's just when you mention, you know, uh, Lakshmi, and then you you talk about Lakshmi, and I'm like, oh, my God, (laughs) has she been in my meditation? You know, how does she know? Because it's your experience as well. And it was like Lakshmi, Durga, uh, Goddess Kali. Kali came to me in such a profound love. It was the massive love explosion experience for me. Yeah. And looking at her image, people think they're fearful. But for me, it was pure, pure love. And when I was going through your book, I'm like, this is amazing. These experiences and the mantras, the practices you've given are very true to the traditions of, you know, and that's what I love about all the offerings you do. And I will try to be there for the meditation next time because our right. time zone and all that. I, I know. Record it somehow. You know? Yeah, we always record it. I know it's hard. It's hard to tune in live from Australia. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm actually doing the meditation class. I don't know how this works in Australia, but and normally I teach at five in the afternoon, but it's very hard for people in Europe. So I'm doing the meditation workshops at eleven 
a.m. my time, which which works for Europeans. It it works out to you know eight o'clock London time. I don't know. I'm not quite sure about the time in Australia. It's like tomorrow in Australia, right? Yeah. Yeah. We are already on Friday. I was looking at the calendar. I'm like, oh my God, Sally is coming on podcast. Like today's Friday, right? I'm re- we are recording. I'm like, maybe it's not Friday for Sally, but it's for me. It's <laughs> and Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's very confusing because a lot, we have a lot of interactions with people from different continents. And yeah. I always scratch my head and think, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if you're recording it, then definitely, I mean, we, we'll have access for that. So that's yeah. good to know. Yeah, and everything is recorded. Yeah, that's one. And uh, a secret, um, my audio courses are, uh, the recordings are considerably less expensive than the live. Partly because a big part of my classes is the, is the community communication. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the community, my community is very a lot of very great souls in that community and a lot, they offer a lot of wisdom. So when you take the classes live, you know, you can participate in that. But when you do the audio, of course, you can do it at your own pace. And also you get all the written materials, the homework. I give a lot of practice homework. So is give a lot of, a lot of practices that you can use, not just during the course, but for the rest of your life. Beautiful. That's good to know. Definitely. I'll, I'll be there, you know, and uh, thank you for being here, Sally. Really, really appreciate you being here. I love your work and I wish you all the best. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank no. you, Sally. It was really, really lovely. And thank you for your work and your practice and the love that comes through you. So it's really thank been a pleasure. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate that, that you're taking this time out of your day. Don't forget to subscribe. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.